This is New Life Christian Fellowship's weekly message podcast. You can find us online at newlifepetaluma.org. And now, this week's message. Hello, everybody. My name is Ron, and I'm so glad that you've tuned in from wherever you're watching, whenever you're watching. Uh, We are headed into a teaching series that I think is vitally important for all of our Christian faith. I know I've I've encountered a lot of people over the years uh, who kind of tell me, um, hey, Ron, I've never actually doubted Jesus. My parents were both Christians. My all of my grandparents were Christians. And I've I've just never questioned. uh, I guess if it was good enough for them, it's good enough for me. And I have no stones to throw at that. But I do want to suggest that it's a better situation if our faith rests on something more solid and secure and truth-based than just a family tradition. So for the next three weeks, we're going to dig into this tremendous foundation of truth that underlies the entire Christian faith. We're doing it under the title, Why Jesus? What's the big deal about him? Why does everyone seem to have an opinion about him? Uh, And so let's just start out and dig into, well, why Jesus? And I'd like to suggest three, uh, a number of things. First of all, Jesus is a big deal because he answers the metaphysical questions that concern all of us. Questions like, where did I come from? Where am I going? Especially after this life. What's my purpose in this life. But Jesus answers not just the metaphysical questions, he also answers the moral questions that concern all of us. What's right? What's wrong? Who says? Why do they get to say? Those are huge questions that play in everything that we do day after day. But Jesus also goes deeper than that. He promises to take care of the evils that trouble us individually and certainly trouble our world. And that's a big deal. Jesus promises to remove the guilt of those evils from our lives. And then he goes even deeper than that. He promises to change the evil in our life to good And he promises to give us life after this life of a different kind, not a sort of of reincarnation of a similar life uh, to what we have here, but to take us into a whole new kind and a new dimension of life called eternal life. And yet there's one more thing because Jesus' impact on the landscape of human history is so gigantic, we can't afford to go through this life and not at least consider what he has to say. Because more than any other person who has ever lived, Jesus has affected the landscape of human history. And so it becomes a big deal. And for those of us who are Christians, 
we start with our children at a very young age. And I just want to say one thing about that. I know in Sonoma County, it's kind of a popular thing to say, well, I'm not going to teach my kids anything about religion. I want to suggest to you a way better thing. It's your job as parents to find out what is actually true and then to do your best to help your children understand that and not to leave your children floundering and having no idea where they came from, no idea where they're going, and no idea what they're supposed to be doing here. So here's a little video that I think is great. And uh, it's done with a group of people who just got a bunch of kids together and asked them, hey, what's Jesus like? Enjoy. Oh, he looks kind and and he wears a robe. He has a beard and he has a mustache. He looks like dressed up in white. He's very bright. And he has long blackish brown hair. It is curly and he has blue eyes. He knows each one of us one by one and loves us all. He likes us. He is Heavenly Father's son. Jesus is a brother. What shall a man give in exchange for his soul? He is our savior. He'd sacrifice a lot. Like he was, he got nails in his arms and died for all of us. And he, he toned for us. And he healed our alleys. He let me repent. He is, um, someone we can all look to for if we need an example of how to be. He tells us to care about other people. He'd like warn people about stuff like and make sure they're all safe because he cares about each one of us. Now when I pray, I feel comforted by him. It feels like he's giving me a hug. He heals people. He makes it so the blind can see and the People that can't walk, they can walk, so he makes it so they can walk, and that's pretty much all I know. He wants us to follow the commandments, always pray and read our scriptures. Be like him and help others. Show respect of how he made our world and obey his commandments. I want to help other people, and I want to live with Heavenly Father again, and I love Him very much. So if you're like me, you look at that video and you think, that is so awesome. Those kids, as young as they are, already know that God loves them, that Jesus loves them, and hopefully they will go through the rest of their lives being able to say what that last little girl said, I love him very much. But did you know there's a whole group of people who would look at that and that they would go, that's a terrible thing. Those parents are filling those kids with ideas that may not be any more real than Santa Claus himself. And they're teaching them to build their whole life around that. And you know what? If Jesus isn't real, then that's true. 
So this delves into the whole subject of faith, and I think it would be good for us to understand what faith really is, and then we'll take a look into this deeper. I looked it up straight in Merriam-Webster, and here's what it says. Faith is trust, having a firm trust in something for which there is no absolute proof. Now let's just start with a concession. It's impossible to absolutely prove that there's a God. It's impossible to absolutely prove that Jesus was God in human flesh. And those are basic tenets of the Christian faith. And there is no absolute proof for them. So what do we do then? Are we left without recourse? No, absolutely not. We do the same thing that is done every single day in every court in our land. And that is when we don't have absolute proof, we look to the evidence. And the writers of the Bible understood that our faith was not based on conjecture. It was actually based on evidence. The writer of the book of Hebrews puts it like this. Now faith is based on the evidence of things that you and I can't see. And the Amplified Version adds this. It's the conviction of their reality because faith comprehends as fact what cannot be experienced by our physical senses. So faith is really based on evidence. And it's important for us to look at the evidence because here are the implications. If Jesus is real and he's right about what he says, well, then my goodness, it's the best news in the world. It's amazing. And the implications are literally worldwide. But if we don't accept them and we don't embrace them, it could be like a cure for cancer. If it's real and it's right, the implications are phenomenal. But if we don't believe it and we don't embrace it into our lives, it could be as real as gravity itself. But it will be tragic in our lives because we will have bypassed what could have been the best thing we ever had. So let's start with this question. Is Jesus a legend? A sort of religious Santa Claus? A religious unicorn? Or is he legit? Is he really a real life figure in human history? And so we're going to do this by asking one simple question. Where does the evidence point? We're going to look at six different kinds of evidence. So let's jump into the first kind, and it's one of the most powerful forms of evidence in any court today, and that is the, and that is the witness of someone who is there, an eyewitness. And we're going to look at just two of them, although there were hundreds of them. We're going to look at just two because they wrote it down for us. And, and one of them was John and the other is Peter. And they were both part of Jesus' 12 disciples. And they literally lived with him, following him for three plus years of their lives. And this is what John wrote. He said, from the very first day, we were there taking it all in. We heard it with our own ears. We saw it with our own eyes. And look at this. 
We verified it with our own hands. It wasn't like we were sitting in an audience somewhere and Jesus was distant and we saw him and we heard some noise. No, no, no. We verified it with our own hands. The word of life, that was one of John's titles for Jesus, appeared right before our eyes. We saw it happen. And now we're telling you in most sober prose that what we witnessed was incredibly this. The infinite life of God himself took shape before us. We saw it. We heard it. And now we're telling you so you can experience it along with us. Now let's take a look at how Peter wrote it down. Peter said, we didn't follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Now think with me for a minute. Suppose you and I were to try to convince somebody who was at ground zero on 9-11 when the towers crashed and we were to try to convince them that that wasn't a real event, they would say to us, I got the dust from those buildings all over me. I heard them crash. I saw them fall out of the sky into a pile of rubble. There's nothing you could ever say to me that would convince me that wasn't real because I was there. Eyewitness. Very, very powerful. And like 9-11, if there are enough eyewitnesses very soon, what was an eyewitness thing becomes common knowledge across a much broader scope uh, of the human family. And so today, virtually everyone in our world believes that 9-11 happened, that the towers crashed. They, they believe that that tragedy actually took place because it's common knowledge in our world. Well, guess what? The life of Jesus, the death of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus were witnessed by so many hundreds of people and yes, even thousands of people that it became common knowledge. Take a look at this. This is, this is a story from the life of Paul, who became an apostle later in life, and he was arrested and put in jail because he was a Christian. And the king at the time and the governor at the time called for him to come from prison and to tell them why he was in prison and why he was a Christian. And so we're going to just lift uh, an excerpt from that story. So Paul says, with all respect, Festus, your honor, that's the governor, I'm not crazy when I talk about the resurrection of Jesus. I'm both accurate and sane in what I'm saying. The king knows. Why? Because everybody knows. It's common knowledge. The king knows what I'm talking about. I'm sure that nothing of what I've said sounds crazy to him. He's known about it for a long time. You must realize, he's talking to the governor, you must realize that this, this, this life of Jesus, his crucifixion, and even his resurrection wasn't done behind the scenes. It is common knowledge. Now let's look at a third kind of evidence, and we'll, we're going to call this documentaries and research journalism. And just like today, 
There are people that dig into the life of John Kennedy or any other major event in our country's history, the Civil War, you name it. There are documentaries, all kinds. Well, Jesus' life was no different. He was such an outstanding figure in human history that there were all sorts of documentaries written about him. And one of the most famous of them is actually contained in the Bible. It's called Luke, and it was written by an actual medical doctor who actually uh, became a follower of Jesus and decided to write a documentary about his life. That's kind of cool, but what I really want you to see is the process that he went through. Luke says, many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, speaking of the life of Jesus. And we're doing, we're writing them down just as they were handed down to us by those who were the fir- at, at the first were eyewitnesses. Luke is saying this is tantamount to you and I going and interviewing people who were at Ground Zero on September the 11th, and they saw it all, and we were to interview them and write down what we found out. Luke says, I'm doing that very thing. And he goes on to say, with this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account. And we have discovered numerous documentaries of Jesus' life in these ancient documents that have been unearthed via archaeology. So now let's go on to yet another kind of evidence, and we'll call this ancient Christian manuscripts. Now listen, These are just as much a part of history as ancient non-Christian manuscripts. These are just people, and they are writing about what they have heard, what they have learned, what they have experienced, what they have read. And it's important for you to know that as of this moment, we have unearthed more than 25,100 ancient manuscripts of portions of the Bible that refer to Jesus as a real person, not a legend, a real person. We have unearthed tens of thousands of additional ancient documents from people who became Jesus followers, who also refer to Jesus as a real person in history. You could easily say that Jesus is the most referred to person in ancient history. And every reference to him speaks of him as a real person. Tens of thousands, thousands upon thousands of ancient manuscripts, all with the evidence pointing in that direction. But you might say they're all Christian. They have a reason to sort of lie and fudge on the truth. Well, guess what? There are numerous non-Christian references to Jesus. So let's take a look at those. We're going to call those ancient non-Christian manuscripts. So uh, the first is written by Tacitus, who was a Roman historian. And uh, 
The backstory of this is Rome is caught on fire and the Emperor Nero is, is in the hot seat because people think he did it on purpose. So he decides to blame the Christians. Now listen, this took place in 64 AD, a mere 31 years after Jesus was crucified. So get this, in 30 years, this, this itinerant preacher from an obscure village in an obscure country called Israel his impact on the world is so great that more than a thousand miles away in Rome, there are so many Christians that the emperor can actually blame a tragedy on them. And Tacitus writes about that. Here's what he says. To get rid of the report, and I put in there that Nero had set Rome on fire, Nero fastened the guilt and inflicted the most exquisite, exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations. I'll get to it in a minute, but to, to put it shortly, many of the pagans believe that Christians were cannibals. So hence the, the, the abomination. But notice what he says. This class is called Christians by the populace. And why Christians? Because Christus, that's the Latin form of Christ, from whom the name had its origin, suffered the extreme penalty. That was the Roman reference to crucifixion during the reign of Tiberius, which you can read about in the Bible, at the hands of one of our procurators, Pontius Pilatus, which is the Latin form of Pontius Pilate that you could also read about in the Bible, and a most mischievous superstition that was his word for religion, thus checked for a moment, again broke out not only in Judea, the first source of the evil, but even in Rome. Straight up reference to Jesus as a historical figure and a straight up reference to his crucifixion and death and even naming the guy who did it. This is not stuff made up by, by some overzealous followers of Jesus that somehow found its way into the Bible this is the real stuff. Let's look at another manuscript. And this particular manuscript, uh, like Tacitus, is written by um, another Roman guy who happens to be a governor. I'll tell you about it in a minute. Here's how he writes about Christians. They were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang in alternate verses a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves by a solemn oath not to any wicked deeds, but never to commit any fraud, theft, or adultery, never to falsify their word or deny a trust when they should be called upon to deliver it up, after which it was their custom to separate and then reassemble to partake of food, but food of an ordinary and innocent type. Again, many of the pagans, because the Christians talked about communion as the, as the emblems representing the body and blood of Jesus, many of the pagans thought, eh, they're eating the body and blood of a dead man. Now that is disgusting. But here, Pliny the Younger, I love that. Many of you thought that was only a beer. Up here in Northern California, actually gets its name from the governor of Bithynia and Pontus in a letter that he wrote to the emperor Trajan. And in the end, he said, it would, uh, when I investigated, I, I didn't find any cannibalism. I found food 
of an ordinary and innocent kind. Let's go to yet another um, uh, piece of evidence from non-Christian ancient uh, manuscripts. And this is written by a Jewish historian whose name is Josephus. Again, not a follower of Jesus at all, but here's what he wrote. About this time, there, there lived Jesus, a wise man, if indeed one ought to call him a man, for he wrought surprising feats, a direct reference to Jesus' miracles. He was the Christ. That's another name for Jesus. When Pilate, that's again another figure from human history, condemned him to be crucified, those who had come to love him did not give up their affection for him. And on the third day, he appeared restored to life and the tribe of Christians has not disappeared. Again, Josephus, all these people were actually people who lived in the exact time frame that Jesus lived. They, they, they might have been born um, 10 to 15 years after he died, but in the same general time frame. And here's Josephus, who, who was born four years after Jesus was crucified. And he's writing about Jesus as a, as a real historical figure. Let's move on quickly uh, to the Babylonian Talmud, which uh, was compiled between 70 and 200 AD. So in the period of years just after Jesus was crucified. And here's what the Talmud says. On the eve of the Passover, Yeshu, that's the Hebrew name for Jesus, was hanged. For 40 days before the execution took place, a herald cried, he's going to be stoned because he practiced sorcery and enticed Israel to apostasy. But again, you can see a direct reference to Jesus. And then let's go to one more. And, and this comes from a Greek. So we've had two Romans, a Jew, and now somebody from Greece. And here's what... Here's what Lucian, who was a Greek satirist, says. The Christians worship a man to this day, the distinguished personage who introduced their novel rites and was crucified on that account, was impressed on them by their original lawgiver that they are all brothers. Well, you can see that's a central part of Christianity. From the moment that they are converted and they deny the gods of Greece and worship the crucified sage, another direct reference to Jesus, and live after his laws. Friends, we are left with only one real conclusion, and I want to read it to you. Here it is on the screen. If the standard criteria for critical historical analysis, this is what is used to evaluate all other historical documents, if, that standard, if those standard criteria are applied to the thousands and thousands of references to Jesus found in ancient documents, then Jesus has to be as real as Julius Caesar or any other historical figure. And in fact, if you want to read it, even from Wikipedia, here's what it says. Virtually all scholars who have investigated the history of the Christian movement find the historicity of Jesus is effectively certain. Scholars differ on the beliefs and teachings of Jesus, but virtually all scholars support the historicity of Jesus and reject the Christ myth theory 
that Jesus never existed. Friends, that's where the evidence all points. Bo, I want to give you one more uh, type of evidence. And I call it the against all odds. I couldn't say it as nearly as well as James Francis Allen did. And in this narrated video, you can see the against all odds kind of evidence. Enjoy. Here is a man who was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another obscure village. He worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30, and then for three years, he was an itinerant teacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never owned a home. He never had a family. He never went to college. He never traveled, except in his infancy, more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He never did one of the things that usually accompanies greatness. He had no credentials but himself. While he was still a young man, the tide of popular opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemy. He went through a mockery of a trial. He was nailed upon a cross between two thieves. His executioners gambled with the only piece of property he had on earth, his seamless robe. When he was dead, he was taken down from the cross and laid in a borrowed grave through the courtesy of a friend. Twenty wide centuries have come and gone. And today, he is the centerpiece of the human race. All the navies that ever were built, all the parliaments that ever sat, and all the kings that ever reigned, put together, have not affected the life of man upon this earth as powerfully as has this one solitary life. Wow, that is some powerful evidence. It is safe to say that Jesus has affected the flow of human history more, way more than any other person who has ever lived. So I want to wrap this all up with an invitation. I started back at the beginning by saying one of the reasons that we should consider uh, Jesus, why Jesus, is because he promises to remove the guilt of our sins, because he promises to change our broken human nature, and because he promises to lead us out of this life into a whole new dimension of life called eternal life. And I think I'd be remiss if I didn't give you a chance to embrace that into your life. And if you've never done that, I want to I read out loud a simple prayer. I'm putting it on the screen so you can read it out loud yourself. And if you're ready to say, you know what? 
I get it. I get that Jesus is real. And I have a hunch he's right. And therefore, I want to align my life with his. Here's a simple prayer of commitment that you can pray. Jesus, I choose right now to trust you with my life and my eternity. I believe you are the one and only Savior sent from God. I ask you to forgive me of my sin, to lead me into your way of living, and to take me one day to live with you in eternity. In your name, I pray. Amen. For every one of you who prayed that prayer and made that decision, that is awesome. Now listen, if you're in this area, if you live around Petaluma, I want to give you an invitation. We are doing a baptism service coming up in a couple of weeks on November the 22nd at 3.30 in the afternoon. It's going to be a patio service. It's going to be outdoors. We're all going to be socially distanced. The The water in the baptistry is, is going to have uh, the appropriate amount of chlorine in it uh, to make sure that, that no communicable diseases, including COVID, can be passed in that water. It's going to be a fabulous time. And this is the way that Jesus chose for us to indicate to those around us that we have chosen to align our lives with Jesus. So if you're an adult and you believe in Jesus, but you've never actually been baptized, I want to encourage you to get baptized at New Life. If you're watching from some distant area, find a local church and ask them, when are you doing your next baptism service? I want to get baptized because I've chosen to, to align my life with Jesus. If you're in this area, you simply contact via email uh, one of our pastoral uh, staff members, Christy Enyart, and you can reach her at Christy, it's pretty simple, Christy at newlifepetaluma.com. And she will walk you through that process. Hey, it's been so fun to be with you. These next two weeks are going to be awesome as we build more of this foundation of truth that our faith can rest on. Let me say today, I am so grateful that I don't believe in Jesus because my fingers are crossed and I hope it's true. I believe in Jesus because of the preponderance of evidence that all points in that direction. And Justin sums this up so well in a song he wrote called Love Came Down. We hope you enjoyed this week's message. You can find more information about New Life, including contact information at newlifepetaluma.org. Thanks for listening.